and welcome back to Inside the War Room. I've been on a slight hiatus here, but we are back now and uh, back with one of my favorite guests, the man, the myth, the guy who is taking an inflationary victory lap himself, Mark Picado, <laughs> uh, or the Mr. Flamethrower. However, what do you go by now? Yeah, it, it's. It, I, I like the flamethrower. I, I always. I, I wore that with a badge of honor. I thought that was good. <laughs> okay, well, good. It's good to have you back on. Um, well, thanks for having me. So let's talk. Let's just start with inflation. Where are we at in the inflationary picture? Are we close to the top of the bubble? The bubble about to pop? Has the bubble right. started? Has things started to ease? Where are we at? You know, I, the the one thing that everyone keeps pointing towards is uh commodities and and yes like commodities is the front end, uh, is the is the tip of that spear mm-hmm. and at now you're starting to see commodities roll over you're starting to see a little bit of a slowdown and by commodities i'm talking more iron ore copper you know you're starting to see some abatement of the price increases but <clears throat> when you look at the inflation structure you have to look at the whole supply chain. So when when we go through it all, we're looking at at where where is the U.S. going to buy stuff from? You know, it's Japan, it's South Korea, it's Taiwan, it's China, it's Germany. So then when you go into their internals and you look at their prices paid versus prices received, prices paid being what did they pay for the item, and then prices received of what did they charge? And when you look at the the just the delta or the difference between the two there's still more price that can get passed through, or maybe they just hold things constant and they say, look, well, you know, the, our prices are coming down a bit. We're not going to pass on more, but then you, you, you take it to the coast and you look at container rates and container rates are through the roof again. Mm-hmm. Then you come into the U S and, and you, now you're in the U S where we have a shortage of truck drivers. We have uh, an increase in diesel prices an increase in just trucker rates then you so then you start assembling all of this and there's still more to come when you look at the uh at the whole cycle but you know when does it end and, and when does the consumer essentially say look i i can't i can't tolerate it. when does the market push back and i think we're starting to get a little bit closer to that point which instead of seeing you know, deflation, I think we're going to start to see more stagflation because when then when you look at, okay, well, companies are going to try to recover as much as they can, but now you have, you know, rents going back up. You have, you have uh, food continuing to rise. You have some other pieces that used to be deflationary that are now going to be inflationary. So yes, gasoline prices may just kind of stay here and not continue to drive up month over month, but what about rents? What about food? What, you know, these other things that have been the uh, uh, that have lagged throughout uh, COVID, and then not not to rant for too long, but then take it to the next level and say, okay, well, how are we? What about labor? You know, we're we're seeing a lot of this without new labor, without without wages going up. So now, not only had did you have the raw material side. But what happens when people, you know, you really have to start paying higher wages to come back? Well, wages get passed right down to uh, to the consumer. So how much of that can get passed through? So there's so many different pieces where this is we're far from over in terms of just where this inflationary price increases are are going to go. So where is the job market? Ellen and I yesterday on Energy Week talked about um, there could be fuel shortages this summer. Because a lack of truckers, so not because of lack of fuel, not because of lack of supply, not because refineries are shut down. There's not enough truckers to get the potentially to get the fuel to the gas stations as we hit summer demand. 
Mm-hmm. Now, when you hear that, the, the trade association was saying that the truckers, 20 to 25% of the trucks were parked. This was in part because people had left um, for other jobs, A, uh, or B, hadn't returned to the workforce. Um, I haven't looked at the unemployment data lately, but how much of this unemployment problem uh, or, or for a problem like that are we seeing? Is it because people are um, you know, staying at home getting paid or have they just moved and we're going to see problems in the economy just because people shifted jobs last year? I, I think that's the the bigger issue is the shifting of jobs when you look at just the skill set because you know when and we talk we talk about the jolts data, uh, we talk about the the beverage curve in terms of just where things are where job openings never really fell to the level that you would have expected based on how steep the decline was. Instead, we just kind of went sideways where unemployment rates exploded, but job openings never really stopped. And you see this weird flat line when you look at the curve in general, and now you're starting to see this reopening, but what, what does it take? So then you take your example of gasoline, which for those that may not be aware, gasoline is very flammable. So you need a federally mandated uh, license. Breaking news on the podcast. (laughs) There we go. There should be there should be a red bar that goes across. Gasoline is flammable. It's just yeah. (laughs) And so the when when you think about just the ownership of it, you you have to. There's risk behind it. So you need a special license for it. You need a special training for it. And when you look at where are the licenses, well, the licenses are federal. If you look at uh, marijuana, marijuana may be legal at the state level, but is still not at the federal level. So you need to meet federal drug tests in order to meet this. And then you need training. So when you look at just how, uh, you know, trucking, for an example, if you go back to 2018, 2018 was a boom period for trucking. You had truck companies coming up, buying new equipment, hiring new people. 2019 kind of sucked. And 2019 slowed. You had at the end of 2019, you had two gigantic trucking companies go bankrupt, stranding you know thousands of drivers on the road. And then you had obviously COVID, where on on the fuel side, you just didn't you didn't have the trucking demand, but you did have the trucking demand to move containers, to move stuff, because all of a sudden you had these shortages across the supply chain. Now you still have those shortages across the supply chain. You're still paying them a lot of money. So why am I going to go do short haul gasoline if I'm getting paid way more to do long haul uh, container ships, uh, you know, containers. So you have this weird dynamic now where you have this massive shortage. You're increasing. I I think it's like $5,000 sign on bonus, free training paid while you're training, you know, bonuses for miles. So they're trying everything that they can. And it just isn't enough because of those hurdles on, as you said, skills, as well as that, um, that difficulty in getting the license. Well, and, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't know where me and you would come down on exactly what regulatory authority the government should have. And, and the listeners would probably agree or disagree, but I think this is just an important time to kind of stop and say, when the government, whatever you believe about regulatory power, um, when they say this is essential, this is not essential, which, you know, obviously is what they did last year and, and shifted so much of the economy. Uh, people had to go, you know, here's, go find a job or just because you're getting unemployment doesn't mean you can pay your bills. Right. And so for some of these people, they couldn't pay their bills. Um, they might've moved, whatever. And so we're still going to deal with the ramifications of that. 
for quite some time. And so what's going to happen, I would guess, Mark, here's your thoughts. They're going to start paying um, all these bonuses for truck drivers, and they will attract truck drivers because that's what the market's trying to do. They're trying to attract it. Um, but this is going back to an inflationary problem. This is going to push up the price of gasoline or whatever else they might be carrying on these trucking companies. Um, and then the end consumer is going to have to pick up the cost at some point. Uh, and then these truckers. <laughs> so we're in a vicious cycle, it feels like, where it's, it's, we're, we're dying by a thousand cuts if we're not careful. And that's that's the, the the problem that we continue to see when which is why when we talk about inflation and we're talking about it through the supply chain, we still haven't seen the peak. And that's and and then when you look at you know the old rule of thumb going back to twenty fourteen, the old rule of thumb was three dollars and fifty cents. Three dollars and fifty cents a gallon was is was that pivot point where people are like, you know what, I'm gonna figure out a way to fill up one less time a month. And my argument has become, it's really not 350. You know, if you look at wage compression, if you look at pressure overall in terms of COVID, in terms of other costs, ancillary costs from food to housing and other, it's really closer to $3 to $3.15. Like, I think that we are hitting a real pain point because, I mean, I don't know if you've been to the grocery store anytime recently, but... It's not exactly cheap, and I've never seen it ever get cheaper once things go up. And then when you look at that in, in general, then you start talking about shrinkflation, which is something that I've, I've talked about before, where the, the, the actual product gets smaller, but the price stays the same. So instead of, you know, you, I, I know you have kids... You gotta tell the you gotta tell the famous shrinkflation story okay. about the, the Easter egg. That's my favorite story. Yeah. So the uh, back in in college, we we had a I had a marketing professor that would work on uh, you know how how people perceive. You know, he was the one that would look at what eye level really means. So at a grocery store, eye level is actually hand level, not where your eye is, but where your hand is, because you're always going to look down to where your hand naturally goes. So we, we, it was always about consumer perception. So he brought in a, uh, a you know, a, a, essentially a, a fake or, you know, a, a, a Snickers bar from 1991, a Snickers bar from 2001, and this was in 05, and, and one that he picked up at the gas station on the way over to class. And he laid them out. And now the, the one from 91 looked like a king size bar, the one that you pay an extra $2 for. That was the regular one that was... I, I, at the end, I think it was a dollar ten cheaper right. than the one from 2005. And then the one in 2005 could you could have fit two of them within the size of the one that was in 1991. So when you look at just the shrinkage of the unit itself, and there's no innuendo in that at all. But when you think about the overall, you know that that everything getting smaller, while prices are either staying flat or 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 really just going up. So then, and then as someone who has kids, I know you know, myself who has kids, then you're buying what you, st- you, would, you could feed a family with one. Now you're buying one and a half or you're buying two. So your prices are still going up, even though based on how they calculate it, the price never changed. Well, it's like, well, it, it, it did though. Like it, right. it got smaller. So I bought more. Well, that, that's a good point. So we have a family of six. So we know if we go get something that says family size, it doesn't matter. It's not probably going to, now I've got two kids, one's five and two, so they don't need a whole lot, but you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a big boy myself and I've got a son who's 13, almost as tall as me. So yeah, we can put down some groceries. Um, but we know if we get something that says family size, that it's not probably going to feed our family and that's fine. But, but it feels like the family size is kind of getting smaller, but the labels stay the same. 
And to your right. point about the king size, uh, this has been, I don't know, a couple of years now. If you, it, It's fascinating to hear you talk about that because Snickers, now they have two bars in one package. And mm-hmm. if you start to kind of compress them to one end, you find that there's a lot of air yep. <laughs> in that package. And they didn't make it so that you could have two bite-sized Snickers. They did right. that so that you would feel like you're getting more. But in reality, the amount of extra space inside the wrapper is a lot more than it used to be. And that's why you always look at the weight and you look at the weight and then the, you can break it down by unit price. And this is where they try to game you. And in the class that I took, there's an actual calculation to figure out at what point does the consumer recognize it's smaller. And, and, you know, you, then you go down the ice cream aisle because I mean, who doesn't love the ice cream aisle and you go to Ben and Jerry's and Ben and Jerry's whole shtick is still a pint. But look at the price. You know, if you if you remember what those prices were, I mean, you could have get uh, when when Ben and Jerry's wasn't on sale, it was two fifty. When it was on sale, it was two for two fifty. Now it's five ninety nine. You know, it's five sixty nine. So just do the percentages on that. Like you're you're talking about a a sheer, but it's not it's not their fault. They're trying to say, look, we're still a pint. We're still going to give you the quality. We're still going to give you the stuff, but it costs more. Right. And I'm going to have to pass that on to you. Otherwise, I'm going to have to get get uh, interesting with packaging. I'm going to have to make it a little bit smaller, take some stuff out of it. You know, if you get the chubby hubby, won't have as much, you know, the things in it to save cost. And and that's, again, those are things that we're seeing that's taking away from the underlying consumer. Now, look at sales. You know, sales have gotten worse in terms of there's less of them. Uh, the quality of the sale, the discount isn't the same. And when you look at the promotions on everything from, you know, phones to internet and other, you'll still get a promotion when yours expires, but it's not going to take you to where you were. It's going to be 30, you know, $30 higher than where it initially was. Right. And so what you're seeing, it feels like on the promotional side is things like streaming services. They are bundling and they're attaching Mm -hmm. like phone plans and to auto loans and to refund your mortgage, things like that feel like they're trying to latch on and i don't know that because i guess the business model is a little bit different there it's not a, a physical product having to be created um it's a repeat subscription business um right. I, and i think moving forward it's going to be interesting to kind of see how these things play out because you know we're, we're sitting around going okay how we've got you know four thousand subscriptions now hbo max comes with our our cell phone so it's not cost us anything but we wouldn't keep it without that um right. we have youtube tv now they got in a big dispute with roku and now they're kind of so almost cut it for that because I only watch it for the sports. Then we have mm-hmm. you start going through all this stuff, and um, it feels like if you go to the streaming world, which is not the same as the ice cream world, uh, but you are kind of seeing people trying to figure out, you know, who is going to give them the most bang for their buck. And the ironic part was, is prior to 2020, everyone was trying to cut off their own piece of the pie, right? So everyone was trying to cut off a sliver and get that. But now we're at a spot to where people were probably looking for consolidation, and so. Um, when you look at like a physical market, uh, ice cream can't consolidate. I mean, I guess they can consolidate at the top, but <laughs> you know, you right. can only sell so much ice cream or you can only sell so much, so much Snickers. Do you think it would be best interest for these companies to, to, um, to put like two Snickers bars side by side, like the true King size. And that's the OG King versus the, the 2020, the, the post COVID King size, just to see how it work. Uh, that'd be an interesting experiment, you know, in yeah. prices. Now, and, and that's where it would be interesting to see just, just how that has changed. And, and the question is always going to come down to, like, as you said, you know, you wouldn't renew HBO Go. You, you know, there are things where at what point does the 
consumer reject. And that's going to be the pivot point as to when does inflation really stop or do you start to see some pressure going the other way? You know, the, the other side to it, because you bring up a good point with, with some of the technology, because like you said, Snickers, I can put Snickers next to each other. I can look at them. I can see like, this is the OG. This is what it was. Right. This is what it is now. But when you start looking at, you know, what has the U.S. done for the last 25 years? We've exported inflation. Uh, you know, we have gone abroad. We have, okay, well, we can go to China or Taiwan or, you know, Vietnam, Malaysia, and I'm going to have a 30% savings cost. So even though it's going to cost me more to ship, obviously, I'm, I'm going to have a net savings. So we've been exporting this, infla- uh, this, uh, this inflation, importing deflation. Well, what has been more deflationary over the last 20 years than technology? So you've had labor and tech that have only gotten cheaper, but now we're at this bottom point and you're seeing it with semiconductors. You know, with the semiconductor prices are no longer are no longer cheap. You know, when you look at cars, you know, car prices are going up for a lot of reasons, obviously, but you know, semiconductors is a big piece of it and technology continues to get put in, but now we're going to start importing it because then the last cycle was you know, uh, as what is it, uh, running, uh, running asset light. So less, uh, less inventory at time deliveries, all of that sounds great until you have a supply disruption and what bigger supply disruption can we think of over the last 50 years than the China COVID. trade war? Oh, COVID. Sorry. Right. We gotta, gotta go forward. Gotta go forward. And, and when you, and when you look at just the, how short inventories are on, on just the U S level, cause you might say, look, I, I get what you're saying, Mark. Uh, you know, I get that there's, there's shortages, prices are going up. Well, just live from inventory. Well, inventories are, are at historic lows. So you have no choice. You have to pay the going rate. And there was a story from from a client who said that, that you know they had a cargo that they needed to get on a ship. And they said, I will pay you whatever price you want to get on that boat. And the guy just said, there is, there is, there is literally no price you can pay me to get on there because there is no room. And it would take me too much time to replace someone. So there is physically nothing you can do to get on that boat. Well, and that's what we're sitting in right now. So let's talk about the, in, I want to talk about semiconductors, but let's go back to importing and exporting inflation. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I made the joke about the Trump trade war with China. Um, I don't know if me and you've ever spoken about this part of this uh, offline or not. So I'm curious your thoughts, but you know, one of the things that um, we were working on a deal to import from South Africa, some green tubes. And we were concerned about getting hit with anti-dumping violation. It was kind of weird because that's not a business. I was just brokering the deal or, you know, helping, you know, I say broke, I was gonna be the importer, but um, I'm not. Um, and so, but I don't deal in that space. So I have no idea what the market price is. Right. Uh, and so we talked to these international attorneys and they're like, Oh, well, you know, if it's not market price, I'm like, well, how would I know it's market price? Like I'd had to call people that I'd be wanting to sell to and ask them, is this what market, market price? prices? Yeah. Right. Now, if I'm getting it for undervalue, what are they going to say? They're going to say, yeah, that's market price. Sell it to me. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of a, a weird thing. And I was bring, I was going to import it and then I had a buyer that was going to buy it. And so, um, and so the, 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 the thesis is, is that the U S government is trying to prevent South Africa or, or China or, or Vietnam or, or wherever from, their government subsidizing the cost on their end so that when the U S brings it in, it's um, it's, a, it's, it's not 
overly uh, competitive for the Vietnam side or the Chinese side or, or whatever. So, for instance, if a tube costs a thousand dollars in the U.S., uh, it needs to be you know I'm making this up nine fifty to eleven fifty um, from South Africa or, or wherever. It doesn't need to be four hundred because the Vietnam government subsidizes it, right? And so the the, the, the issue became um, is that you start thinking about that and go, okay, well, if if the South African government is going to subsidize and, and, and the deal never got done, so I don't know, but I'll, I'll keep using South Africa. Right. But if the South African government is going to subsidize $500 of this, who is that impacting? That's impacting the South African side. They're mm-hmm. losing money on the deal. Now, I understand there's an argument about U.S. jobs we could talk about in a second. But by and large, if foreign nations want to subsidize their economy at the benefit for the U.S., it's hard to argue at just at that high level that we should be against that. We should go, okay, thanks guys. You're, you're helping boost our economy faster. What is your read on that? Now there's an extreme that I think we got to deal with, but at that level, are you okay with those policies or do you think the anti-dumping policies should be in place and try to make the market competitive? Well, I think the idea is making it competitive because how sustainable is that? And, and the, the problem is if you then, undercut the market to such a, a percent that you then kill kill it in, essentially and then when they say oh by the way it's not going to be 500 anymore it's going to be zero and then actually we're going to add something on top of it because you know you, i took out your competition i took out my competition and if you're willing to operate at a loss then the question is well how long can you sustain that and if you right. can sustain it long enough to essentially force everyone else to go bankrupt. And that's that's the underlying problem. Now, if there's going to be some sort of competition in the sense of, well, they're going to be they're going to subsidize it to get it off the ground, but then those subsidies will essentially go away. That's there's there's rules within the WTO that allow for emerging markets, frontier markets to have a certain amount of advantages in order to enable them to get some sort of a head start but then they're capped at one percentage, how long they can do it. And then on a, on a dumping side, you know, what is, what is the going rate and how far below are, are you? Because at the same time, they also want to protect you know, slave labor and other types sure. of mispractices at the South African level to achieve those types of subprices. So I think that there's a place for it. It's just, what is the percentage? Because sometimes I, as you're saying, you're going to get, artificially impacted where it's like you know is it really the right thing but then it's like well no but it doesn't have to be 500 it could be you know 200 with and then you could you could come up with a way to pair that back where over the next five years it's going to go from 200 to 150 to 100 and then you'll be within within that so now now you have people that like the like the quality like the product like you have the relationship and and you're still going to be able to undercut a little bit, but not within uh, with within a margin of error that keeps everyone happy. Uh, agreed, and that's right. I agree that um, if in a theoretical world, um, you know, China came out tomorrow and said that we are going to give all cars, trucks, cars, SUVs, like we're just giving them away, and Ford and GM were like, oh, okay, we're out of business, right? Um, right? That would be a concern. Like, you should go, oh, my goodness gracious, like, this is this is not good, right? There, mm-hmm. So that's the extreme that you that you have to watch for. Now, how long can China sustain that is a, is, is a question that you have to deal with, but there are the extremes of the concern. However, um, it feels like 
the discussion that doesn't happen is, is why can they offer cheaper labor? Now, sometimes it is nefarious. It is the, the blood diamond stuff that you hear about. You know, it is pretty bad. And other times it's just U.S. domestic policy, which is artificially driving up the cost of doing business here. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, hey, they're competitive. Um, well, you know, they have a little bit cheaper labor, but also their energy costs are cheaper. Their taxes are cheaper. You know, maybe we should rethink the policy on our side <laughs> before boosting the price internationally. Well, and that's when you start looking at processing, you know, and, and we always talk about how we greenwash a lot of the manufacturing of renewable energy and all of these other things, because we've, we've taken the dirty side of it all and exported it. So not only are you getting the, the discount, but you're also, you don't have to meet the same environmental standards in these other areas that you have to meet if you're producing this in Oklahoma or Texas. So by doing that, you're also reducing costs because then you're reducing the, the environmental impact. You're taking a dirty process and, and moving it to a place that's not going to regulate it to the same level, if at all, which also takes away some of that cost. And that's where that you have this virtue signaling of, well, you know, look at what we're doing. But it, it, then you also have the issue of, and, and I have a bunch of charts on, on just how much processing of, of iron ore, steel, copper that China really does. And at what point do they say, yeah, we don't, we don't feel like giving it away anymore, or we don't feel like exporting it anymore. We're just going to keep it in house. Now you've, you've, you've exported a lot of this processing and you're beholden to what the market can bear. Yeah, no, it, there is, right, there is a concern. I feel like and, and I'm not saying that you pollute blindly. Like, I, I'm not saying that you bring it back and you say like, oh, just let them do whatever they want. That is not what I'm saying. I, they just, there is just a, perf- there is a balance. Yeah, there, that was there's- That headline. Mark yeah, right. hates Earth. Right, gasoline is flammable and, and, and uh, Mark hates, hates planet. Literally wants to burn the planet. Yeah. So it's when you, when you start looking at pollution, you have to think about, well, is there a carbon capture? Is there a carbon tax? Is there something that can be done to mitigate it, but not to be onerous to this, to the sense where you're going to send it to some place that is then going to pollute way more than you ever would in, in the name of science. But yes, that makes our numbers look good, but the other country is going to pollute more and based on the way the atmosphere works, we're still going to be in the same situation that we were uh, previously. Okay, so semiconductors, let's talk about that. You've been mm-hmm. you were the first one I remember here talking about this. And I remember getting on, I was considering getting a new, I got a Mac right here. So I was considering getting a new Mac a few months ago. And I went to their web, website, and it said that they didn't have the whatever processor that I wanted, the Intel, they had some other processor. And I was like, Okay, I'm not really sure if that's tied up to semiconductors or not. But then you start seeing like Ford and GM, like everyone, like poof, everyone started talking about semiconductors. And it felt like overnight we went from, you know, the flamethrower, the, the, the fifth horseman is like to call you, the fifth <laughs> horseman talking about it to everyone talk about it. How, how pervasive is this problem? Is it like if I buy a new Mac, is it impacting that? Is it impacting my phone? Um, should you hold off on buying technology unless you absolutely have to? Like what's going on with this problem? It's there's there's it's multifaceted in the sense of, you know, where where did this problem really originate? So it it goes back to we were already supposed to be tight on supply coming into 2021. But this was known going at coming out of 2019 because their foundries take a long time to build. They're expensive. 
and that we have new facilities coming online starting in 2023, which would then alleviate some of these pressures. So you already had some tightness coming in just because demand was, is still, was still moving higher and supply was getting tighter. Now take that and then you talk about you know, uh, China and the US and you look at Huawei sanctions. So what is Huawei going to do ahead of sanctions? They then go out and buy as many semiconductors as, they, as their market can bear to kind of buffer against some of these potential sh- sanctions. So then you had that happening. Then you had two new phones in terms of Apple and Samsung. Now, now the, the iPhone was new in the sense where it was going to be 5G capable and Samsung was going to have its sev- uh, second iteration of 5G capacity. So there was an assumption that you were going to get a big step up in demand as people went from 4G to 5G. So you already had this backdrop. Now you drop in COVID of completely screwed up supply chains, foundries closing down, not being able to produce, not being able to get the raw materials. And then that got extrapolated out because then you had people who had delayed buying a car, delayed buying stuff. And now you have people buying, you know, more things because they have a little bit more money. They're not going to watch, you know, the Giants lose or, or the Mets be the Mets. They're sitting at home and they're watching it on their, uh, on their television, not spending that money, which is going into other, uh, to other sides of the, uh, the, um, not buying the supply chain package, uh, either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, and that then when you, then when you take it to, to the ground level and you say, okay, well, how do you make a chip? Well, there's a lot of water and there's a lot of electricity. Well, let's look at the shortage of water. And then you take Taiwan, which has been under a drought forecast, uh, a drought warning for now about 18 months. So they limit the amount of water that can be consumed. And they've just started experiencing rolling brownouts because there's not an even, there's not even enough water behind the dam to generate the electricity necessary. So you have these continuous problems when you look at just the overarching supply chain. Now you take demand. I mean, it's gotten to a point now where even light bulbs have semiconductors in them because they're connected to Wi-Fi. So you can control the lights from your phone, you know, that you have a connected home. So we're, we're just, we continue to see the adoption of types of chips, whether it be logic, whether it be uh, user interface, whether it be memory, you have just this plethora of demand in, in all the smallest places that you don't even consider, which is why the demand has really outpaced where we should have been due to some of this tightness, but from, from you know, new phone cycle. And this, this is one of the reasons, and I, and I, and I uh, talk back and forth on, with people on Twitter who think this is going to be over by the end of Q4, and I just don't see that happening, just given where the shortfalls uh, remain in the system and just where the demand continues uh, across the market. So something you said there made me think of EVs, and you talked about you know semiconductors, and they're just kind of everywhere now. Um, let's talk about the grid for just half a second in demand. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about oil, what's going on there um, in a minute. But um, you know, there, it feels like the EV debate and, and where it's going, it just it never goes away. <laughs> no matter what yeah. happens, it keeps getting demon. I don't really have a dog in the hunt if you want to own an EV or not or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's neither here nor there. But you, you, you said semiconductors are everywhere. Then light bulbs, refrigerator, whatever. Yep. That is going to, on some level, change the grid demand in the homes because you have more smart tech. Now, it yep. might be ultimately 10 years, 5 years, 20 years from now that we can reduce uh, usage because we can be more efficient. That's quite possible. 
Um, it could be that we actually just use more because we have so many more things we're wanting to power up. Like I've like right now, I've got two lights right here. I got a little fan mm-hmm. blowing. I got a big monitor. I got this. You know, so our, our my grid usage today is fundamentally different than it was ten years ago. Um, right. And so, you throw in the EVs to the mix. I, I, where are we at with our with our grid in the U.S.? Can we actually take on? 30% of uh, car drivers you know, with EVs, uh, A, can we produce that many? And B, can the grids sustain that amount of uh, pull? Uh, the answer is no, the, the, the grid can't sustain it. And, and that's where we, you know, we've had these, these discussions and I, I did that whole segment on, on the uh, Texas freeze off and not to say that I called the Texas freeze off, but 18 months prior when you had California running about one, one or almost a full, uh, I think it was over a megawatt short. And, and you just saw these rolling brownouts, you saw these issues going through, that became a, a bigger story, because then you start looking at it and say, okay, well, what is base load versus peakers? And, and, I, and I think that is where the, the market, or at least the layman doesn't appreciate. Base load is something that is on all the time, providing you with your just standard electricity, which is coming from natural gas, it's coming from coal, it's coming from nuclear, that is providing your base load. And now when the sun is shining, you know, yes, solar can be based because it's that's happening. But when the sun goes away, well, that's no longer a base load uh, issue, then you look at wind. So when you start looking at these renewables, and you and you say, okay, well, how do you create base load? Well, you have to have an either an interruptible uh, contract for natural gas backup, some sort of diesel backup, or you have to have battery backup. So now you start looking at the cost of batteries and you start, you know, what is, what is a battery made of that's going to support the grid? Well, it's the same stuff that a battery is made of that goes into an EV. So then you start looking at what we've been doing, which is taking down base load and replacing it with renewables. Now you're making the grid more volatile because you don't have that baseload capacity as we saw in Texas when you saw freeze-offs and you didn't have dual fuel mandates at the natural gas facilities and you had wind that was at 9% capacity versus the installed base. Not to say that that wasn't expected, but again, you're, you're just looking at these problems and now you're going to ask the grid to do more by installing additional uh, draw from it, which is on an EV level. Now the pushback will be, yeah, but I'm filling up at night. So you're taking something that used to be a down period where you had, you know, peaking that would happen in the middle of the day, especially you're in Texas. So it obviously gets a little, a little toasty. So ACs are going to peak at uh, a peak sun. And now, but now you're going to fill up your car, if you will, or charge it in the overnight. So typically when you take things down, you're repairing, you're, now you're just creating this, this huge load that is not going to surge, but is just going to remain elevated and you're not providing the grid with, this, with the sustainable nature of base capacity to handle that. So then if you get any blip in the sense of, you know, you're going to have a heat wave for the next seven days, usage is going to explode. They're going to have to tell you, you can't plug in your car. Right. And, and so how that can work out practically is, is, you know, Bob gets home from work 530 every day and he plugs his car in well, with him and, you know, everyone else does it. Well, obviously you have a huge surge right. at 530 in the afternoon. 
that's yeah. how it's going to work. You're going to have Bob at 5.30 in a group, and then you're going to have you know Tom at 6.30 in a group, and then someone went out to dinner, so they're going to have 7.30, and then someone forgets mm-hmm. 8.30, and then someone forgets it's 9.30. And so the overall surge might not be at 5.30, but the elevation of the base load just goes right. for longer periods of time. Yeah. Um, and so then, then you're in a spot, you're going, wow, we, we've increased the baseload demand. Oh, by the way, um, it's a cold snap right now. So turn the heaters up or turn right. the, um, you know, or turn whatever up. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a problem that doesn't get enough attention. And the other thing is, is can we manufacture enough EVs? Like it or, or like, is that even possible at this point? And, and that's, that's where, when you start coming to the, ele- the electrical pole. So yeah, I, I, back in, in 2014, I think they did a study on if every household, not every person of every household had an EV and plugged it in, the grid would last three seconds before it just, just said, nope, and just shut itself down. So now you take it from, okay, well, I'm installing renewables. So I'm either going to build a natural gas facility or battery backup. Okay. So then how many batteries does it take to provide, let's call it, you know, 12 hours, which we all know, if you look at the dual fuel mandates, you actually need three days of backup power generation. But let's just say you, have, you need 12 hours because you have a solar panel the solar panels uh, need to go through the night. So now you're looking at a tw- how many batteries do you need? Well, how big are those batteries? Now, there's going to be an issue in terms of an EMF or an electric magnetic field, and there's going to be the, the safety of the battery itself. So you can only discharge and recharge at certain speeds. So now you start doing that. So that means that that's going to limit the amount that or extend the amount that your uh, batteries you're going to need to store that because it's going to limit your your discharge. So now you have these entities that are competing against all of the raw materials that are going into the batteries that everyone keeps saying they're going to keep getting cheaper. But why? You know, how can they keep getting cheaper if the stuff going into them is seeing a perpetual increase in in just capacity? Because then you think about like, what can I get that's battery powered? I can get my phone. I can get this microphone. I can get, uh, you know, my lawnmower, my, my weed whacker. I, everything has a battery option. And again, that's just more demand coming into the system. And that's where you start looking at, well, how can EV prices continue to go down? Now, another thing that, that I touch on on a regular basis is an EV is almost a thousand pounds heavier than the car it replaces. Mm-hmm. Now you're adding a thousand pounds and additional torque to the road. Right. Well, how much, how much is that going to rip up the roads? How much, I mean, anybody who's ever driven into Houston knows that there's parking garages that go up 27 floors and they're all filled with F-150s. So take an F-150, add a, a thousand pounds to every one of them. What's the tensile strength of that p- parking garage? Can it handle that kind of additional weight mm-hmm. on every single level? Does it have to be reinforced? So not only do you have to worry about road conditions in terms of the thickness, the, the, re- the replication of them, and what about just tensile strength of bridges and parking garages and other structures that can't handle the additional weight? And when they catch on fire, it takes like, you know, <laughs> the ocean to put them out it seems like yes and and then the question is can do you have the foam available do you have the water capacity you know right. there's there's been several times where they believe a an ev is the fire is out and then three hours later it reignites so you're talk about thermal runaway excuse me how do you maintain thermal runaway because and thermal runaway for those that don't know it's when two chemicals that shall never meet meet in in an accident 
and that's typically when this happens. So when they meet, they go from zero to I'm going to melt steel in a matter of 15 minutes. And that's where you, the, you get this, this timing, you get these issues, and then the, the amount of water to put out a chemical fire versus foam, you know, this is where you start getting these, uh, these problems, not only just on training, but then the foam that they use has carcinogens in it. So now they're cancerous in its own right. And it just, it just goes on this continuous circle of, well, we're going to pollute, but what is the, what is the best way to pollute or the, li- or the least amount of damage we can cause while we come up with something that doesn't pollute anything? Okay. We buried the lead. Let's get to it now. Oil and gas, oil <laughs> prices, your favorite topic. Looking at yes. it right now, Brent's at 68, mm-hmm. gas at 66. Um, how, how, how does it hit you? Do you feel good? Do you, you like those prices? Do you think those prices are right? Are they too high? Are they wrong? I'm, I'm poking the bear here a little bit. I'm <laughs> so it, it's, it's funny because everyone like thinks of me as bearish, but then, you know, if we go back in time, depending on when you knew me, I, I was a permeable. So it all comes down to, uh, to perception. You know, the, the issue that I have with, with crude pricing right now is because, you know, everything you said is front month. So when we look at front month crude, and then you look at the supporting barrels that flow throughout the, the world, you have Nigeria that still has you know, deferred cargoes from April. They've now taken about 200,000 barrels a day out of May and put it into June while they're issuing their loading schedules for July. Angola has cut exports because they can't clear their current deck. Congo has cut their uh, exports because they can't clear. And you're so, but then at the same time, you're seeing some ESPO, which is just some Russian oh, barrels. Let me uh, here, just to make sure you're saying that these countries have barrels that they cannot sell. Like yes. no one wants to buy them. It's not, this is not the ship is full and we can't put the oil on the ship. This is, hey guys, we want to sell you oil at this mm-hmm. price. And no one, and everyone's like, not family good. Yes. That is correct. Because earlier we talked about we couldn't get it on the ship, but this is the opposite. No one wants to put it on the ship, but there's plenty of ships to take it. Correct. Okay. So, and if you look, like the amount of ships that are available keeps growing, which is why day rates have been fairly depressed when you look at just uh, oil tankers and and when you look at India, for an example. So India skipped buying in in um, in May. Now they put out tenders for June and July, and it was for only three million, which the hope was for for it to be more. And you're just seeing this, the physical market, which I, as anybody knows, I always talk about, continues to price something that the paper market is ignoring. Now, people will push back and say, well, the futures market is looking into the future. It's like, well, then you should be buying December because December is cheaper than, than where we're sitting right now. And what, so what are, we, what are we actually looking at? And then, then it gets complicated a bit further when you start talking about refined product. Because there is a significant amount of refined product that is currently competing for a home. And just to take an example, like, and this is all before Colonial Pipeline, you know, you had Saudi Arabia that was going to sell, that sold about 1.8 million uh, barrels of gasoline into the U.S. market. And this was before you even had Colonial providing that price bump. So you're seeing this, just get it, get it out of my tank and into the market. And you continue to see this elevated level of just crude and refined product and storage. People like to talk about one or the other instead of looking at both. So then you take China, for an example, where everyone's like, well, well, 
you know, China's importing more oil. It's like, yes. And they're also, uh, I think they've imported now 4% more oil than they did in 2019. It's like, but they've also exported 34% more product. So yes, you're importing more oil, but you're exporting more product, which is then shifting somebody, somebody, somebody's refiner can't come back up because you're saturating the refined product market. So then you look at Singapore, South Korea, Japan, uh, Australia, where Australia decided to shut a facility. You know, you're, you're seeing run rates remain low because the shift is, is happening. And that's then then now you look at China, China is going after Shandong or uh, teapot refiners. And they're now, uh, they're going to put levies on, um, on light cycle oil, which is a semi-refined product. And that's going to, that's going to hurt South Korea, Japan, Malaysia. And, um, and, and that's going to, again, and Singapore, and that's going to kick again and shift the the paradigm again and that's why i i just i struggle with where the demand is where the physical market is and then when you look at crude pricing you're like huh so i'm wrong if you just base it on pricing well that's what that's what i was gonna say is the the obvious retort is okay mr smarty pants but prices are still mid-60s how do you explain that and and that's when you start coming to the inflation narrative and the inflation narrative is looking at well Inflation's going up, dollars going down, so I'm going to buy oil as an inflation hedge. And when you start looking at the inflation side, you can say, okay, well, I get it. I understand what you're saying. But when you look at just the physical market, so then people say, well, you're bullish. You were bullish grains forever. I was like, yes, but there was a supply demand balance I was also looking at where, yes, I thought inflation was going to be there. Buyers were coming out, but you had a supply issue. We have, we do not have a supply issue. So the supply problem, which you could say was artificially created by OPEC, which is now being alleviated because they have to start getting back to business in some way, is is going to meet whatever new demand is. Now, some when I do the EIA show on on YouTube, I'm I'm showing the same data, and and my whole thing is we are getting better, which. I think everybody expected the U.S. was going to reopen. We were going to get better, but to a point, and and that's always been my thing is like things are going to get better along seasonal lines, but not back to 2019, which to be fair, 2019 wasn't even a good year. And I actually was getting bearish in 2019. So when you look at where, where we are in a demand cycle, you know, we've been reopened. And, and I think you could at least look at Texas. Texas has been reopened. So everyone keeps talking about this grand reopening. It's like, well, what part of the country hasn't been reopened? Like what is, what's remaining that we haven't seen yet come into the system? And that's where I, I struggle with this grand reopening plan that's going to push us higher. Well, that's, well, part of the problem is, you know, unless you're following it, you turn on the mainstream media and they talk like that, right? Right. And so you turn on Anthony Fauci or uh, I don't watch MSNBC or CNN or I see mm-hmm. clips, but you know, you'll, you'll see a clip on the internet. Like what are you talking about, man, <laughs> so yeah. it's a big country. And it's, it's really hard to figure out what's going on in New York city or Portland, right. Oregon or Granbury, Texas. Okay. Hey, no one talks about Granbury, Texas. So, and man, mm-hmm. in fact, none, but it, it is kind of hard to, to, um, to follow that. And the other thing I think is interesting to your point is, um, even if everything is open today, there's a psychological impact and you can't yeah. measure that. We don't know, will people respond and just go balls to the wall, back, ready to go. The other thing is, is how much money did people spend last year to re-improve their home, 
to yeah. buy that new laptop and they don't have excess cash now. Um, so there's a lot of things. I think you'll see people want to go on vacation this summer. I think you'll see that right. because people haven't got to go on vacation for a while. So I think you see summer demand go grow up. But beyond that, when you get to the fall, you get to the Thanksgiving, you get to Christmas, will consumer debt, credit card debt start to rise because people are out of cash? Uh, I think there's a lot of things to follow along those lines that, that we still we still don't know. And so you talk about demand. Um, the bigger the one of the bigger driver for demand is length, right? So it's not yeah. you know getting going to the gas station, it's going cross country or flying internationally. And those indicators are still down. Yes. And and I think you bring up a great point. And, and that's one of the things that we talk about a lot on the on our econ show and the EIA show is when you're looking at the the consumer, but what is the consumer views of the market? And we, Gas Buddy did a great, uh, a great uh, survey. It was 186,000 people. Pew has done one. Uh, there's been several now that have looked at, look, how do you feel? Like, are you, will you go into a crowd? And I am perpetually shocked, and, and maybe I shouldn't be, but I am surprised at the amount of people that still say they will avoid crowds. They will avoid a crowded situation. A, and, and there are people that won't. I mean, and, and you can see it. Like the numbers are very clear. It, it is, it, there is this sticky 25 to 35% of, of respondents in which, which again, it's, we're not interviewing 330 million Americans. They're interviewing a subset of anywhere from 150,000 to, to 500,000. But 35% of those people are still saying, I'm going to wait another six months. And, and I think, and that is, I think this other piece of the pie that continues to get missed. And then guess, buddy did in their uh, report, they said, how, they, the question was, what is the biggest uh, component of you, uh, a hindrance to your travel? What are you, what are you can, worried about the most? And number one was price. Mm-hmm. Number three was health. Mm-hmm. It was price distance health. Mm-hmm. So clearly people who are, who are talking about this, they are vaccinated. They're looking to go, but price is number one. And 46% said that, look, price is a real issue. And to your point when, cause everyone's going to talk about, but, but, you know, Ryan, Mark, you know, look, you know, disposable income, look at savings. It's like, but that's a skewed number. That's the aggregate of the United States. When you break that into its subsets, you can see that a lot of those savings are weighted towards the top 10% of the, of the uh, consumer, not the bottom 90%. And let's be fair, during, the, during COVID, were the top 10% really changing their spending patterns to such a way? In a way, yes, like they weren't flying, they weren't going to concerts and whatnot. But now that's back. You know, Anybody who had that pent-up demand has done it. Anyone who wanted to get vaccinated got vaccinated and look at the pace of vaccinations. They've really come down because anybody who wanted it, got it. Anybody who wants to fly can, mm-hmm. you know, what city can't you go to? And, and then, like, as you said on the news, everyone makes a big deal about New York city. New York city is not a driving area. Right. You know, when you, you know, Texas, that's a driving area. That's where you're going to drive 20 minutes to go to target. You know, if, if you're in New York City and you want to go to Starbucks, you know, just point in any direction and it's going to be a block away. If you want to go to Starbucks in, in Texas, you're getting in the car and driving like there is. So when right. when you think about the, the concept of just just activity levels, I, I just think that we're going to be underwhelmed with where we shake out on this pent up demand view. 
Okay, real quick. Um, and the other thing I think that can't be measured, it's going to be a small subset, but it will be there, is people who are afraid to go out after seeing everything that's happened in the last uh, 12 to 12 months or so. Um, I'm talking about um, COVID fights over masks, non-masks. I'm mm-hmm. talking about people getting in protests and riots and just civil right. unrest in general. There will be a subset of the population who goes, you know what? I'd like to go on vacation, but the last thing I want to do is go down to the beach and then some big brouhaha breaks out where I go to the restaurant and, you know, and so um, you might have people waiting, just not, not a fear of COVID or anything, just want to make sure that things are calm in the country. And so <laughs> that's, you know, that's a, that, what portion is, uh, is unknown. Um, so a couple of things, uh, we're up against the clock here. Wheat, corn, lumber, I know have all had decent retracements. Do you expect those prices to kind of level off now? Will they still keep going down? Um, because they were out of control let's just be honest they were out of control and that was a a lot of uh, sentiment that built up when you when you saw the news you saw china buying huge old crop Mm -hmm. new crops you saw these shortfalls now we're there it's a growing season so the growing season has caught up a bit you had again the paper market running ahead of the physical market and now i think you're gonna see this hold firm on the grains level where you've had some pullbacks, I, I think the pullbacks make sense. Now you're going to start to see, well, how are things progressing? How are the other crops moving? And I think you're going to start to see this stabilize a bit at this level. Now, lumber, <laughs> lumber is its own entity and beast, because when you look at the, the trees, there's enough trees that I see the trees, they're there. You know, they're not getting any crazy prices for those trees. It's the processing, mm-hmm. the processing, they, the sawmills went down because of COVID. They were slow to come back and you had this pent up demand, obviously because of housing. Like you said, people were putting add-ons additions. So you had this, you did have a big demand increase, but where else do you need truckers? You need truck drivers in right. uh, lumber. So right. not only did you have a sawmill shortage, but you then had a trucker shortage and both of which have persisted. So the lumber market is very thin, easy to, to move around. There's, there's different restrictions in it. And I think that there is a lot of paper movement versus what is the actual underlying lumber telling you. But again, I, 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 if I'm a betting man, I think lumber continues to fall. Okay. All right. So it's great to talk to you again. Um, I always, so, always learn pleasure, so much. Learn so much. Try to sound as little stupid. I can't even speak. You make me stupid. like you in your presence. I just realized how ignorant of a human I am. So I disdain you for that. But you also teach me a lot. So I appreciate that. Um, where can well, people, I appreciate that. Where can people find you? You mentioned your show. So let's talk about your shows. Sure. You have a YouTube channel that you mm-hmm. put out shows. Um, what are those shows? And where do you want to send people to? Twitter, YouTube. Where, 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 where? Sure. So on YouTube, uh, it's uh, Primary Vision Network. We do a EIA show every Wednesday looking at the uh, U.S. data, global data, and putting it all together from an oil and refined product side. Uh, the Economy Show, where we look around the world, looking at macroeconomic uh, data points and drivers and really t- trying to say what is going to happen. And then the Frack Spread Show, looking at U.S. completion activity, where things are going. Uh, best place to reach me is Twitter. It's at Mark FNY, you know, keep it, keep it simple. Okay. And um, bonus question, have you and big Orin gotten into it lately? <laughs> so I, we, 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 uh, we direct message constantly and uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's always fun to go back and forth. I, 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 I will let you guys come up, shake out your political beliefs. I just want to make sure that I am there when this great meeting happens. 
because I'm convinced there's going to be a lot of hugging, a lot of tears, a lot of lot of just good drinks and times had by all. And but I want to see this happen. Listen, okay, here, here's the deal right now. Let's get it on the books. 2022, we're going to Spain and we're going to go row the bulls and we're going to go see yes. Big Ward. Let's get in the book okay. right now. I'm going to as long it. as, I'm as long you. as I'm drinking something and not running with the bulls, but drinking other people running with the bulls. <laughs> I'm done. I don't know the Bulls. You yeah. can watch. You and Orin. Okay, watch. I'll watch. Okay. I'll, I'll watch a big Orin. I'm going to Twitter. When we get off, I'm tagging him. Uh, I got another buddy who wants to go to Spain. Not tied up Big Orin, but it will go. Yeah. I think Big Orin is probably my biggest fan. He's a kind of a fanboy, if I had to be honest with you. He loves me to death. <laughs> so, yes, uh, he will be when we sign autographs, selfies, yep. shine my shoes, all that kind of stuff. So, anyways, Mark, <laughs> it's, it's great to get you on. Uh, thanks for everything. And, folks, go check out Mark's work. As always, and I think you'll be on again next month, and so we'll talk to you then. All right. Sounds good. Thank you.